Today's episode is sponsored by ANSI Labs. ANSI Labs is a Colorado-based game publisher that invented the Fidget Cube in 2016, and they've designed a game that is loosely based on their experience with funding Fidget Cube on Kickstarter. The shipping deadline is looming, and you have a slew of logistics, eager customers, and trolls vying for your attention. You were not prepared for this, and you'll need to rapidly ramp up operations to rise to the occasion. Fidget Factory is a fast-paced, chaotically fun co-op game in which you and other members of a small startup scramble to make and deliver a product before time, and your coffee, runs out. To be notified when Fidget Factory launches on Kickstarter on August 27th, head over to ANSYLabs.com or text ANSY, which is A-N-T-S-Y, to 900-900. ANSY Labs is also currently accepting game submissions for new games at ANSYLabs.com, so be sure to check out their website. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at QMLogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're going 3D, talking about 3D games, talking about what it looks like to design a 3D game. And we're talking to Dave Schultz. Dave, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Gabe. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, man. Excited to have you here. Glad to talk about this. This is something I don't have a lot of experience with. You know, I've designed lots of of games that kind of have some 3D elements some different things that are kind of 3D in nature, but nothing that's like totally 3D. Like you've got uh, right now with this really cool game called Gridopolis. And so I'm excited to kind of get your ideas on how do you put one of these together? What what does the design process look like, playtesting, all that kind of thing for a game that goes, um, it's not just flat. It's not a card game. It's not a board game. It, It goes up as opposed to just going out on the table. Right. But before we get into that, who are you? How'd you get into game design? That kind of thing. Well, um, I've been a pretty much a designer and a creative type of person my entire life. I uh, started off as an architect and then I kind of branched out to product design. I got my master's in um, product design from Art Center in Pasadena, California. And then I just decided to branch out and um, I ended up with a lot of uh, toy and technology clients uh, since I was in LA at the time. So we just, you know, one client led me to another. And, and whenever I found a challenging project, I took it. So I've designed everything from consumer electronics, uh, computer stuff, furniture, lighting. I mentioned the buildings for architecture. And right now I got a lot of uh, clients kind of all over the spectrum. Yeah, very cool. And you've worked for Hasbro and Mattel and companies like that, right? Yeah, that was uh, kind of a surprise. I, I got hooked up through a friend and uh, I guess I impressed him. I ended up doing like 40 different projects for Hasbro, at least 20 for Mattel. Uh, and I should mention my first big toy client was Lego. I entered a design competition while I was still in school. And then they hired me for a few more projects after that. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Now, is there anything out there on the market that maybe the listeners would have heard of that they can kind of tie your name to? Yeah, actually, most recently, I've been doing a lot of work for Educational Insights. They're, they're pretty big. And... Uh, I designed probably a dozen different products in their Nancy B science line. Um, three of these were actually nominated for Toy of the Year. Didn't win, but I had three nominations, so that was really cool. So these are educational type products like you know, telescopes and microscopes and even a little uh, bug catchers and uh, you name it. They have, they have a wide range of educational stuff. So that's kind of where I got into that type of uh, product design. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, as far as working for, you know, Mattel and Hasbro and Lego and these other, you know, gaming or kid kind of companies, uh, 
tell me like what that means as far as like, what are you designing? Are you just designing certain parts or did you design entire games? What did that look like? You know, it kind of uh, um, has a huge range. What I've had, I've had any of the clients you mentioned call me up and say, you know, we've got this uh, category. It's very well-defined. Um, we have a rough design. We need you to refine it. Or we need you just to do some sweet-looking rendering so we can get it reviewed and approved. Uh, all the way to the other extreme where they just have a very rough idea. It's kind of a blue sky type project. And they say, yeah, it should do these couple of things. We have no idea how it's going to look, how it's going to work. Let's just explore. So I've done everything from those two extremes. Yeah, it's, it's really weird sometimes. Clients uh, get you going with almost no information whatsoever, but that can be, you know, more fun too. Right. I guess some of these projects, you get to really be more creative than others uh, for sure. And so like, are, they all, are they all of these 3D type of things where you're, you know, renderings or designing th- different models and different things that kind of go come off of the table? Exactly. Yeah. You're, uh, as an industrial designer, it doesn't really matter what you're designing. It's typically all three-dimensional. I mean, uh, 2D is definitely uh, more closely related to to board games as you're talking about, but almost my entire experience is three-dimensional objects or in architecture environments, you know, designs that you go inside of yourself. So I didn't find it very difficult to branch out into product design. It's a three-dimensional object. You just don't go inside, you know, but you do have a more closer relationship because you pick it up, you use it, you kind of develop um, this bond many times, you know, just, just picture yourself without your phone. Uh, most people would, would have a panic attack. So <laughs> yeah. designed correctly, you know, people become really attached to products if done well. You know, it's got to, it's, I, I think it's the blend of both design and engineering and interface. I think there's a lot of overlap there. That's a really good point. There's a lot more to it than uh, I think a lot of people realize. Absolutely. Yeah. You can't just, you know, this is kind of the knock on some uh, people who've gone to design schools is they're all about styling. And that never, that was always a, you know, I'm, I love stuff that's beautiful, obviously, but I, I would not be very proud or successful if it didn't work. So some people always look at it as an either or, and I said, no, it's got to be both. You know, and I mentioned Apple, and so they're, I think they're the perfect example. Stuff is so well engineered and reliable and beautiful. You can do both. And a lot of clients just, I think it's, um, you're making a huge sacrifice if you're picking, uh, you know, so you have to pick one or the other. And I don't agree with that at all. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I mean, it needs to be functional and fashionable. And we're getting to that space in board games more and more. As more games come out, you know, it's the ones that look really good that stand out from the rest. And it's the ones that look really good and play really well that, you know, are kind of the cream of the crop. And so more and more that's becoming the case with with board games. It's, it's not just about a good game and it's not just about a good looking game. It needs to be both if you're going to stand the test of time, you know, and not just get lost in the crowd. And so with 3D games... Like, first of all, let's define that. What do you, what do you, when you think 3D games, what does that mean to you? So to me, I got to be careful because a lot of times when you say 3D game, people immediately say, oh, a video game. I play on my, on my monitor or my TV. Nope. Right. I'm just talking about a board game that comes up off the table and you play in three dimensions. And that always seemed like a, kind of a strange thing to me. Why are all board games flat? Um, you know, you can get tremendous play value of just chess or checkers or any of the classics, but they never change. So when I started this project, I thought this is going to be a fantastic challenge. See if I can go up in three dimensions and really allow things to happen. You know, I teach at a design school, so I wanted to uh, explore it over a long period of time, not, not try to rush stuff. I think that was a big key. 
Yeah, for sure. Now, a couple of my favorite 3D games are actually mass market style games with Jenga and I love playing mousetrap with my kids and I got them this like power puff game, power puff girl game that, you know, it comes up off the table and you get these different things you're throwing at the different power, power puff girl, you know, it's a fun dexterity kind of game. Like what are some of your favorites though, that kind of stand out in your mind as really good examples of 3d games? Well, uh, there's so few, you've probably mentioned about half of them right there. Jenga <laughs> is, uh, is perfect because it's so simple. I love the fact that, um, Anyone can understand it and anyone can play it. You know, it's just all about balance and, and um, a little bit of dexterity. Um, you know, the only thing I'm going back to when I was a kid, Connect Four, which is kind of a good vertical checkers. Yeah. Even though that's like tic-tac-toe, four in a row, they just made a vertical. And for some reason, that was uh, way more exciting. And I, of course, it's still out, so hopefully people are familiar with it. But all the other board games are just kind of flat. So um that's why I thought there was an opportunity, a huge opportunity, you know, to do strategy, you know, rich, not complicated, but rich and dynamic 3D strategy. Keep it as simple as possible so people could jump in and learn it right away, but go into the third dimension. And um, it was surprising because, you know, initially we thought, you know, what's going to happen? And it's just going to be more, more difficult possibly. But really, you're just applying the knowledge you already have. And you're taking to the third dimension. And I was like shocked, you know, initially it's like, you know, in chess or checkers, you may have one or two moves from a single uh, playing piece. When you're in 3D, you can do those same two moves on a flat area. You can go up vertically, you can go down uh, vertically, and you can go up or down at any angle. So all of a sudden you, you had instantly, you know, five or 10, sometimes up to 20 different moves. From a surprisingly small set, that was that was another very nice surprise. Just by going to that third dimension, you had more places to go. You didn't, it, and I, in fact, I think we're about the same number of um, playing positions as like an average checkerboard. You know, roughly sixty. Yeah, and it's a really cool idea to, to think about what does it look like to take a classic game and then just take it into the third dimension. What does that do? It actually reminds me of the game Upwards which I played years ago, which is basically Scrabble, but you can also stack letter tiles on top of other tiles. And so you could turn cat into bat by putting the B on top of the C. And now you're going into that third dimension and, and it creates a brand new game, even though it's basically Scrabble in the three dimensions, but it, it now has so many more uh, different interesting choices and interesting things to think about. And so it's kind of cool to think, all right, what does it look like just to take a game that's been around forever and, and put it in the third dimension and kind of see how it changes? Yeah, so the, another thing um, that uh, came out about this is uh, I looked at this as a completely blank slate. So anytime we uh, hit a problem, there was a mechanic or a, a rule that didn't work consistently, we just threw it out and we came up with something else or two other things and then tested that. And you know, sometimes those wouldn't work. You just kept refining. So that was... Uh, if, a lot of fun, but also a lot of work because you never knew when it would just click. And I just wanted to not rush anything. I mean, that's a really important point here. I've had too many client projects where you know they have, we've got exactly two weeks to get this to a certain point. And you know, to me, it just seemed like a lot of that was arbitrary. You know, they had a schedule that was inflexible, and other projects have been damaged. So I thought, you know what? I don't have a deadline on this. I will just take as long as it needs. And I, I think that was uh, one of the most critical components is just letting the thing evolve and grow and, and tell us where it wanted to go. 
Yeah, definitely. There's there's definitely a lot of value in having deadlines and actually pushing you to get it done overall. But I can also see how having too many deadlines or too too much of a deadline or being too deadline oriented, I guess, is maybe a good way to yeah. put it, might make the project you know not the best it could possibly be. I've talked to lots of publishers and lots of designers. And I say, how do you know when a game is done? And they say, whenever it's due at the <laughs> printer, you know, <laughs> whenever the Kickstarter is about to happen. And it's like, well, that's that could you know constrain you a lot of times in a negative way if, you, yes. if you're not really planning it correctly. Yeah, and I didn't have any clients on this, obviously. I was hoping to pitch it to some multiple toy companies and do licensing initially. So I did have a kind of a rough outline. But I wanted um, other people besides me to say what was working and not working. So this whole idea of testing with um, not only other people, but maybe people you don't know that well. So you can get very uh, honest and um, excellent feedback. That That was the key. Just continuously testing a new idea. Um, I remember one time we I developed a new part for the game. Uh, this is basically like a transporter in uh, Star Trek. So it allowed you to land somewhere and then um, teleport to another part of the same board game. I thought that could be interesting. So the way I ended up finding out that it worked is I made this 3D part in my software, uh, then uh, printed it out brought it to the class where I teach at Otis. And so the students noticed this new part. They're, they're playing the game like they do every week. And they said, what is that? And I said, well, we'll talk about it later. It's just a teleporter. And all of a sudden they stopped playing and said, put it in the game now. And uh, it, from then on, I knew it was a big hit. This was just a crazy idea I had one day. I was trying to envision um, different structures where they weren't all connected which initially sounds like that makes no sense at all, right? So you've got a board game, everything's, it, you start at one end, you go to the other end or whatever. I thought, what if they weren't connected? Two people sat down and couldn't agree in which structure to build. So they each built their own. How would they get back and forth between two different structures? Well, obviously that's a Star Trek teleporter or transporter. So I said, okay, we'll try it. You know, it's a blank slate. Um, I'll see if people like it. And that was, that was kind of one of the, the biggest hits we had. Yeah, very cool. Now, real quick, uh, what is Otis? Oh, sorry. I, that's a class I, I teach at um, Otis College of Art and Design in Los Angeles. Uh, sorry, I didn't mention that. Um, I've been teaching there about 18 years, a class in uh, 3D modeling and prototyping with a little bit of uh, rendering and animation. Very cool. And now, do you like have a board game unit or anything that you teach and you kind of bring these concepts to class? So, no, it was just I was uh, substituting for another class, and everyone was um, working on their own projects, kind of a studio, and I just let students volunteer to help me game test. So, um, you know, we always had, you know, three, four, five different students testing out the game from, you know, the feedback of the week before. So that became a nice little routine where, you know, whatever I could think of or whatever they could tell me one week to the next, I'd go ahead and make changes. We would tweak a rule. Um, I would change the size or shape of, of the grid set structure. This is the playing arena. Um, or add new parts, like I just mentioned, with the uh, teleporter. Awesome. Now, what do you think is the appeal in these kinds of games? I mean, there's not that many. I mean, we're like we're, we've already mentioned probably most of them. Uh, there, I'm, I'm sure we're missing a lot of really good ones that people are sitting there thinking, oh, you didn't mention this game, and that's, you know, that's part of it. But like, what do you think these games do appeal, even if there aren't that many of them on the market? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I initially thought there was a lot more I just wasn't aware of. Um, I 
thought, um, you know, the, the first inkling or idea with this was to take a construction set and a strategy game and merge them together. I thought that would be unique and, and different, but at the same time, I thought it was such a cool idea. It must have been done, and I just wasn't aware of it. So that was actually uh, a big part of the beginning, uh, weeks and months of researching, trying to find somebody who had done a 3D strategy game, and that slowly realized that there just wasn't any. So that that was also exciting too. You know, I was a little bit scared because after investing months of time, I thought I'll find one somewhere, and then I'll have to stop because I don't want to copy anybody. Yeah, and I'm actually I can't remember the name of the game right off the top of my head. I saw it on Kickstarter a while back. It's a miniatures game that uses magnets, and so the board is your normal grid, but then it goes up as well. And I want to say it's even like a box, and you can kind of go up and you're bouncing around, you know, going different places on the on the, the grid, and it's just a normal right. miniatures game. But they've taken it into the the extra 3D, you know, more than just the, the miniature on the, on the playing surface, but actually being able to go up the walls and things like that, which is a really cool concept, especially if you're, you know, if you were playing a game and you had like Spider-Man and being able to jump on walls and things like that. So there's lots of different things I feel like we could do, but a lot of people right. haven't explored yet. And so it's almost like a, a new frontier out there. Yeah, I think you're right. There has been a couple examples I've run across since, but uh, every one of them is very static. You know, if it's got a level or two or three, it's fixed the entire time. So I think we offer something unique is we have a structure that you can build. So uh, we let people follow our plans. That's typically works really good when they're getting started. They build our, our grid set plans. Um, but pretty quickly they realize, you know, with all these modular parts and we only have three parts in the grid set. We have a pad, we have a post and a link. And so the pad is where you play and then links and posts help you go sideways and vertical. So, you know, that, kind of led me to thinking, you know, if you're breaking the grid set down into parts, why not let people change those? And that's where, you know, it got really interesting. It kind of expanded out into a system where you could play um, one game on a, on a grid set and then change a grid set and play the exact same game. And that was another cool development. The fact that uh, you could apply the rules to almost any different shape or configuration, whether it was, you know, we have the, a couple of kind of standard ones. We have one called the matrix, two, three, or four player. Then we developed a two player vertical tower, which is a much shorter game because you only have two players and it's a more constrained battlefield. And then we have uh, the most recent ones called super cube. So that's a two to four player. And it's just like it sounds. You play on the outside of a three dimensional cube. So, but then we get to the really interesting part. You people start to realize, well, if he's designed these three different ones, I can design my own. And I think that is probably one of the, the coolest uh, thing of the, of the whole thing is you can play on these different configurations. They can change while you play. And then at the end of the day, you can design your own. You can design your own original game from scratch. Yeah, that sounds really awesome. And it kind of makes me think like, what if Connect 4, if you could do a hexagon board instead of the normal rectangle, right? And you can, and it's going to change the game, not, not dramatically, but it's going to change it enough to kind of give you some new ideas, new options. Now your game, Gridopolis, is it an abstract strategy game? Like tell me a little bit more about it. So I think, so the listeners can kind of get a, a better idea of like what exactly we're talking about. Yeah. So it, it, we're, we try to borrow rules from games you already know. Um, I just had uh, this pet peeve of a lot of games where they had a manual that was a hundred pages, especially with the fantasy game. So I wanted something that was quick to learn, but we had, you know, kind of a, a rich three-dimensional playing area that just made every game different and unique. Uh, that's the key, though, is get people into it fast, make it fun, make it easy. 
even though initially, just looking at it visually sometimes, it looks a little complex. Uh, so the, the way I did that is just borrow rules from games you already know. So the play pattern is pretty simple. You start off on opposite sides of the structure, and you move a pad at a time, and you capture your opponent by jumping over them. Uh, the key is it has to be in a straight line, even if you're going up or down or diagonal. And then that way you capture them, they come off the board. And so it's basically last player standing. You're moving and you're jumping. Um, then we then added the element of uh, dynamic play, we call it, which is where everyone gets extra parts at the beginning of the game. These are the pads and posts and links. And so at any time during the game, you can move or you can jump. That's the basics. But you could also build. So that's where it gets, uh, again, really interesting and I think very innovative. So the typical parts of games is, you know, later, uh, later on during the game, you may notice that the, the board kind of clears out and it just becomes a little tedious, or you may even have a stalemate. Well, that happens far less often because you can add to the set or even subtract from it um, as you play the game. So a great example is you'll see people in many strategy games hiding in one corner or one area. So you can just add a pad right behind them, and now you can jump over them. So that is, a, I think, a, an innovation I haven't seen anywhere else. So I'm really proud of that one. Yeah, I mean, how much better would risk be if I could build a bridge yep. to get to Australia from Madagascar or something like that, you know, to get from India down there and not have to go through that one choke point. That's interesting that you can change the game just by building different things or subtract. And it also gives you more strategy. You can think, okay, I want to do this in three turns. And so on my second turn, I need to build this extra thing to be able to do that on the third. It gives some really cool uh, decisions to be made. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, that's um, uh, kind of, we have multiple differences, but it's based on the same core set. So you have to plan ahead, but a lot of times you're, it's harder to do when you have the ability to move in three dimensions. And then it's complicated by the factor, the board may look different the next time when it's your turn. People may be adding or subtracting from the grid set on their turns. So a place you thought you would go doesn't exist or somebody's moved, um, or add, I should say, added some space behind you. So you got to get out of the way. Yeah. So let's talk about the challenges in designing a game like this. Tell me about prototyping. I can see that as a huge barrier when trying to, you know, put one of these kinds of games together. Tell me about your prototyping process and any kind of tips and tricks you have for somebody that maybe wants to make a game like this. Yeah. Well, it really helped me out that uh, I teach a class in 3D modeling and I'm, I'm pretty fast at it. Uh, but up, up until I started this project, I would send parts out for, for printing. So the beginning of the project, I decided to buy my own 3D printer. And I think that made all the difference. So every time we did a design revision, I could print it out in an hour or two and then immediately test it. So I would I could tell, hey, this looks great or it doesn't work at all. Nothing fits, it falls apart, or it just looks bad. You know, sometimes stuff on the computer screen looks gorgeous. You put it in your hand and you go, wow, that's ugly. So I just kept changing stuff and uh but with a 3D printer, it was very cheap and also very quick. I was able to iterate. I don't know if I'd been sending these out, if I would have done maybe even 20% of the prototypes that I did myself, just because it was so fast and so easy. Yeah, for sure. And now, do you have any um, recommendations as far as software or anything like that? Yeah, there's at least um, 30 different 3D softwares. I use one called Rhino. That's the one I, um, I teach at Otis College of Art and Design. I also have got, if you're interested, I've got uh, courses on LinkedIn Learning. So I've done about 15 different courses, all on Rhino. 
some for modeling, some for prototyping, some for rendering. Um, and then I've got a Zortrax 3D printer, which I highly recommend. But you know, there's a lot of models coming out which are as good or better, you know, every month, every year. So those are getting better and cheaper. So it really is, this is something I couldn't have done like five years ago. I just couldn't have afforded it, would have done that many iterations, that many prototypes. Yeah. And so where can people find those courses on LinkedIn? Like, do you have a, a link or can they search for something on Google or something like that? Yeah. If you go to uh, LinkedIn slash learning and then just search for author, my last name is Schultz, S-C-H-U-L-T-Z-E. Boom. You'll see the 15 courses I did. Awesome. Very cool. And so, all right. So prototyping, you're probably going to need a 3D printer unless you're wanting to, you know, wait weeks and weeks and weeks in between versions and things like that. But then you got to play test, right? And so now that you have your game and you're putting it together and it's all clicking, literally clicking together and going yeah. together and all that kind of thing. Tell me about the play testing process and, and what it looks like for this kind of game because it's a little bit different. You, you can't just, you know, send it out and print and play, so to speak. So what does it look like? So, uh, yeah, if you haven't seen it, and I guess we're, this is an audio podcast, um, it's a really cool looking three-dimensional structure. Um, one thing I haven't mentioned is we were able to get this system down to only seven parts. So I mentioned three parts are the, the grid set. Uh, then you have your player markers. And then we have three additional parts that fit on pads. And, and basically we call those nodes. And all they do is they just modify how the pad works. So they're indicators of things you can do or objectives to achieve. Uh, one of them is the, the hyperpad, which I mentioned, teleports you from one to another across the board. So uh, it's a, yeah, it's really hard to explain. So if you think of like a checkerboard, instead of uh, black and white squares, we're, we have orange circles, we're identical. And then we go up in 3D. So playtesting, uh, I kind of used uh, everything I could think of. And what I mean by that is initially I would do it with uh, coworkers. Um, sometimes they got tired or were busy. I would um, end up playing a lot of games by myself, just pretending to be uh, opponent A, opponent B, flip the board around. A lot of times you can find out with, if something is uh, going to work or not quickly just by testing it out yourself. And then I mentioned uh, going to Otis. I would bring a pile of parts with me. And then once a week, whatever volunteer was interested, we would play a game. Sometimes it was a two-player game. Sometimes it was four players. Uh, I usually try to stay out of it and just let them explore and learn and, and then you know, kind of observe and try to get uh, you know, more, more honest feedback whenever possible. Yeah, and I guess a lot of this with this kind of game is just straight up product testing. Does it work? Do these things click together? Does the game play the way I want it to? More than, you know, in addition to, uh, is the game fun? Yeah. You know, do I have good choices? You just have to make sure it works. Yeah, exactly. So there was a whole uh, a, a array of different things I was doing. I wanted it to be beautiful and cool looking as a designer, but the parts needed to be um, logically and, and well engineered so it snapped together easily but also come apart easily you know, we wouldn't have to break them um, i also needed them to be uh, tooling friendly uh, this is really critical as a designer to understand that if something uh, looks fantastic if you can't put it into an injection molded machine and make them in high volume uh, you have completely failed so i really paid a lot of attention to making the parts small and simple um, that's also going to lower the cost if, and so like i said we only have seven parts and they're all pretty, uh, I think, tool friendly, and they 
you know, very shallow in, in many many senses, the, the meaning that they can pop right out of the mold and there's not a lot of deep drawing that can actually slow down production. So I get really nerdy with the engineering. Uh, fortunately, I've had a little bit of experience. And since I had kind of an open-ended time frame, I was just able to test from 3D software to the prototyping and see what worked. You know, again, this is that was the key. Having the uh, software ability, having a 3D prototyping machine, um, I, I probably did dozens and dozens of revisions. I think right now, at last count, um, we did get a, a set produced, uh, 500 manufactured in China. And every part is either version four, five, or six. So that's pretty unusual. You might go through one or two rounds of prototyping uh, in a normal project with a client and a, and, a, and a deadline. So I think that's why things work so well and looks, uh, I think, pretty refined currently. Yeah, let's keep talking about the publishing side of things. Tell me more of the challenges that you've run into as far as the, the publishing side. Well, it's funny. Initially, I thought this would be a fantastic uh, game for one of the companies I mentioned, you know, Mattel or Hasbro. I uh, met with Lego. I probably met with eight or nine different companies. And as cool as they said it was, they were concerned that it would be too challenging to explain. You're playing in three dimensions. It's not just a strategy game. It's a system. It can expand and extend, and you can design your own. So, you know, halfway into the pitch, they're going, man, I'm, I'm lost. I'm confused. So I started simplifying the pitch and saying, okay, we have one game. It just happens to be in 3D. And halfway through the, you know, the next pitch, they would say, hey, this seems like a modular system. Can we design your own and change it? So I let them discover that. And I said, yes, that's the beauty of it. But still, at the end of the day, they were just uh, convinced it was too complicated. In fact, I had more than one company say, hey, do you have any ideas that uh, are like a pie in the face? <laughs> it's, a, it's a super successful game, but... Um, I'm not sure if it's going to be around as a classic. And I hate to say that because I mean, they sold like 20 million units. It's, it's ridiculously successful. Um, I wanted something that was more of a traditional classic where people from all ages could play it. You know, that's some of my fondest memories growing up is, you know, the parents and grandparents, everyone's playing with the kids. It was a game everyone could understand and that had been around for a long time. So I had a lot of challenges I put on myself. And that's kind of why I had an open-ended schedule. You know, I just, how can I make something really different, unique? It's got to be cost effective or no one will buy it. It's got to have this uh, appeal to a wide range of ages for, you know, so that's, that was one of the terms I said, I'm going to make a, you know, a, a current classic or a future classic. Yeah. And you bring up a great point about, you know, if you want to, if you design a game like this, you're wanting to get it published with a major publisher do you have to really think through, like, is, is this going to fit? Because like you're saying, they want games that you pop people in the face and aren't really games are really more just activities yep. kind of pretending to be games, so to speak. Exactly. And so if you're doing something a little bit deeper, it, it's going to be a, a difficult thing to, to find a publisher. And so you're going the Kickstarter route, which I think the Kickstarter is the perfect place for this kind of a game. You know, something that, that, that doesn't quite fit certain niches or anything like that. And then you just kind of do it yourself. And so tell me like some of the challenges you've run into just taking on the publishing side of things yourself and having to work with, you know, manufacturers in China and things like that, as far as like, give me maybe some of the, the, 
the unexpected things that have happened, you know, maybe with the tooling, the different types of plastic or maybe different ingredients they're using and, and maybe it's a little more brittle. You know, give me the kind of the deeper dive on that. Yeah, well, the current mo- um, set is made of uh, ABS plastic. Uh, that's probably the only thing I really considered. It's just uh, very hard. You have great color uh, reproduction. Uh, high polish means it's going to uh, snap together cleanly, efficiently. Um, to be honest, I, there was very few problems that came up in manufacturing. Now, the key, though, to get to that point is you want to have a, a known entity as a factory. And you got to go into somewhere where you're introduced or you've known them for a long time. You don't want to just pick somebody off the Internet and try to start up a relationship from the other side of the planet. So uh, I used a company called Longshore. This was recommended uh, to me by someone who's been in industry a long time. He's, he's known them uh, for 10 or 20 years. And so when I got introduced, they treated me with a lot of respect. And there was, a, I think, great communication right off the bat. Um, but on the, uh, I guess on the other side, I had the files and designs really tightly nailed down. Because at that point, it was like two years of testing. I did all the prototyping, all the engineering. So when I turned over the files, you know, there was minimal problems. I just tried to avoid the problems that I ran into with a lot of client projects where things are rushed or they don't want to pay for extra 3D modeling or extra samples. And so I've even seen projects where I'd had clients say, hey, just send the sketches to the factory, which in my mind is is a recipe for disaster. Um, factories are great at producing stuff, but you're uh, giving them a sketch. You're asking them to interpret way too much. So the couple of projects where that happened, they just uh, were basically canceled after a lot of frustration. So knowing that, I made sure to give uh, my RFQ or request for quote bid package really tight, super well defined. Uh, I gave them clean 3D models that I'd printed a million times and knew that there there wouldn't be any issues with that. And still, you're going to have some tweaks and tooling. So uh, a good factory will have what's called a pilot phase. So they'll do a first pass at, at the steel. They cut into it. And then they'll uh, just print or injection mold a couple parts, and then you kind of see what what's working, what's not working. So that that you know pilot phase is critical, and that there's a couple of those in the process. Again, if you're working with a factory you know and trust, they're not going to rush it. They're not going to just try to get the order and ship it and not worry about the quality. So if you have the communication in a high quality factory, uh, that makes it everything so much better. Yeah, and that, that's the case with any board game, you know, with 3D or not, is making sure you're working with a reputable uh, reputable company that, that does a good job and, and really has an attention to detail. Now, with this one, was there a lot of back and forth of them kind of injecting in the molds and making the thing and them sending it to you and say, hey, is this kind of what you're looking for and having to make some tweaks here and there? Well, they actually did, uh, before they built the tool, they printed out all the parts um, with another prototype process called stereolithography. That's actually way more accurate than my machine was. Um, and then we just reviewed them. Uh, everything looked fine. So that's basically just a um, kind of a preliminary. Um, I think another thing that uh, designers or uh, board game creators want to do is go to the factory a time or two. If you can see them in person, that makes a big difference. Uh, I also had uh, a team member in Hong Kong. So I worked with a company called P3 International. Um, Bill Gordon is a great guy. So he speaks English. He's from America, but he works in Hong Kong, and his his primary job is sourcing and logistics. And so he's he's the guy who's talking day to day with the factory. Or if you have a a, 
a new factory you want to consider, he'll go out there, do an inspection, meet everybody, and just make sure that it's on the up and up. Yeah, there's been horror stories where people hired a factory sight unseen and then, you know, never got their product. So that's a big part of it is just having a relationship. Um, and if possible, have someone, you know, local that you can hire as an intermediary who can go run over to the factory um, that day if there's an issue or a question. Of course, we had Skype and they were FedExing me stuff. So I was in close communication, but I did go over to the factory. Uh, one time for a couple days. Yeah, it's such a huge advantage, like you're saying, to be able to see it yourself or at least have a friend or someone you trust to be able to see yep. it and kind of send you pictures or send you updates. Such a huge thing. And I've worked with several uh, different factories in China and even just the language barrier. And, uh, you know, all the people I'm working with, they speak English mostly, right. but there's sometimes some confusion. You know, one time I I'd sent a message saying, hey, I want to add uh, Ziploc bags or, or, you know, plastic baggies to the game. That way people can put their components in the game after, the, you know, everything gets punched out and that kind of thing. And the first email I got back was, why? I, you know, basically, they thought I wanted them to put the game itself, the overall box and everything yeah. into a plastic bag. And they didn't understand <laughs> because the game was already going to be wrapped in plastic yep. to be shipped. And I was like, well, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. And so sometimes you just run into these language barrier kind of things. It's so good to have somebody to kind of uh, help you out. You got to count on that happening. Um, that is just par for the course. And I've had this happen dozens of times with client projects. So I was well aware and also very prepared. So what all you can do is um, you can start off with the communication. I, I try to write really short sentences and um, whenever possible, ideally every single time is sent an illustration with what you're talking about. Um, if you have a three, you know, an object, take a photograph and then you know, in Photoshop or whatever, put notes on the image. They really appreciate that because, you know, like I said, I've seen projects kind of get canceled because of bad communication. And typically these are things where people are giving sketches that are too difficult to decipher. Um, or there's just a lot of verbal writing, emails, right? People talking or people writing and there's no visuals so that everyone's on the same page. Uh, it's unfortunate, I've seen projects that had a lot of potential, you know, I was looking forward to the client releasing them. And they were just doing everything with an email back and forth. And no one was doing images or renderings or 3D models. Yeah, I completely agree. And that's something I've gotten in the habit uh, of doing as well is sending a link, sending, sending a URL of something similar. All right, I, I need yeah. this component. It's kind of like this and I'll send a link, except I need it to be blue instead of red or whatever it is. And just gives them a visual to kind of see it and, and, because the way they would describe it is probably going to be a little different than the way I would describe it, even if we're both using English. You know, we especially exactly when you're right. from Alabama and your English is a little different from other people's English. And so uh, it's just something to uh, to keep in mind, especially when you're doing something like you're doing, which is like if those things don't fit together correctly, the game does not work. You know, if the parts aren't just right, then the game doesn't work at all. And so that's something for you know somebody designing a game like yours to really keep in mind. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I was that was a big concern. You know, I thought that I've done a couple of years of prototyping. So I had a handle on exactly what I wanted, but I would recommend designers to look into getting a really tight and accurate RFQ. This is a, this is a document a lot of people skip. Um, this shows all the parts and la they're labeled clearly. Here's their name. Um, and then whenever possible, you give performance requirements. So I said, I need a roughly a pound of force to snap them together and then unsnap them apart. I also give them, you know, uh, descriptions, you should be able to lift parts up that are connected. They won't fall apart. So any detail like that, along with the visuals, 
uh, will help them understand. And you just don't want to get into a position where you forgot to say something and it doesn't work. And then there's a lot of finger pointing, which can happen too. So not only the communication, but the, the detail. And I didn't think it was that big of a deal. You know, maybe spend 20, 30 hours on a super tight document. I thought this will save 10 times that much time later in problems or confusion. Right. It's a great point. Now, kind of keeping in the in the publishing realm, tell me about marketing. You know, you mentioned pitching the this kind of game to a, a publisher and, you know, maybe being a little too complex, too complicated at the beginning, you had to simplify that down. Well, what does that look like when you're actually going straight to consumers or in your case, straight to Kickstarter? How do you market one of these games so people will, will get it, they'll understand kind of what it is, but then they'll also want to buy it? Yeah, that's been a big challenge because it's three-dimensional. So initially uh, we had images and um, those can only go so far. So uh, one of my passions is, you know, 3D modeling and animation. So we just decided I've got to commit. I did a series of uh, 18 little training videos for all the different aspects of the game, and they're all animated in 3D. So that was the key. This was, um, I think, you know, there's no way to misunderstand. If someone's writing uh, a group of sentences about something in three dimensions, you're rarely going to have someone follow you exactly. So you got to have an image. Even better have a, uh, an animated object, where as you're talking, the things are moving and jumping and connecting exactly as you say. Um, of course, that's a you know, skill not everyone has. I understand that, but it's something I, I'm good at and love to do. So I just kind of bit the bullet. We've, uh, we've got a full training series on YouTube. So just go there and look for Gridopolis, and you can see there's, I think, 18 different training videos from how to set it up to all the different rules and how to even customize it uh, for your own game. Definitely. And I think this more and more with all games is becoming the thing, right? People hate learning games out of a rule book. Most, most people, not everybody, but a lot of people would much rather see it on the table. They would have rather have somebody teach them how to play, whether it's Rodney Smith and watch it played in the YouTube yep. series and the different channels that do that. Or in this case, even if it's just like a really cool, fun 3d rendered, a video of just showing you how, how to how to set the game up, how to play, how to play the different modules, how to add new things in, how to take things away, and just showing. I mean, we're visual creatures anyway, and so having yep. the visual in there uh, goes a long way with helping people to understand. Yeah, that was actually one of the biggest challenges I had, which sounds weird. Coming up with something unique and innovative and fun sounds like it would be way harder, but it wasn't because I was enjoying that part, but figuring out how to show people to start here and go there in a three-dimensional structure where you didn't go off the screen or get blocked by something else. So it took a lot of experimentation, but I think we finally found like the perfect recipe. So if you check out the videos, uh, I'd love to hear your feedback, but we kind of came up with this almost flipbook style. So you'll see the marker on a three-dimensional set and it fades from one spot, it jumps to another spot. It kind of fades in over there. We have lines to show you how things move. We use sound effects. We try to keep it kind of, uh, look quirky in the explanation so it doesn't get too dry or technical. So we really try to make a lot of fun and all the videos are like a minute long at the most. Really quickly paced and fun to look at and fun to listen to. Very cool. Well, Dave, this has been great, man. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts or like what would you tell somebody who's maybe thinking about designing a 3D game or wanting to sometime down the road? Yeah, I've seen a lot of people uh, along the way with with ideas and sometimes they, they could be good ideas or, or not so good ideas, you never know, but I think getting stuff mocked up, prototyped, you can't just have a sketch or, or an idea you describe to someone. You gotta build it and then test it. Um, the more you can do to help people get it, um, the better the feedback will be. 
right? That's the key. You can't just uh, keep it in your head or keep telling people about it. You got to, you got to fabricate it. And you can do that very, very cheaply. You can make stuff out of paper or cardboard if possible. I'm kind of a 3D nerd, so I made a lot of prototype parts so uh, I could snap it together. But I think that's the key: is is just dedicate the time. You, you can't you can't do it on the cheap. Um, you can start off that way, definitely. Um, and as you prove the concept, then you maybe can up your game, yeah. increase the quality, spend more time. Uh, Make stuff full size. You can start off half size, whatever is needed, but just get it physical. I think that's the big key. Awesome. Well, Dave, we've been talking about the game the whole time, but give me like the uh, the Kickstarter uh, elevator pitch for the, your campaign right now. Okay. Gridopolis is a multiplayer 3D strategy game and system. That's about as quick as I can say it. Um, so what it is is... Uh, at the lowest level, it's a strategy game like chess or checkers or even tic-tac-toe, but you play in 3D, which um, is way more dynamic. Um, we make it uh, another degree higher by having this uh, ability to change the set while you're playing. So even though we're in 3D, that's pretty innovative. I think the fact that you can add or subtract from the 3D structure as you play kind of really puts it over the top. And then I kind of at the tail end of this description would be, since it's modular and it's a system, you can then design your own set. You can use our rules or invent your own. It is really an open-ended, we call it like a game design laboratory. Awesome. Well, Dave, again, really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for just kind of the insight and all the, the deep dive looking at this stuff, things I have no idea about. And so I'm always excited to learn about things I don't have any uh, experience with. And so really appreciate you answering my questions and uh, good luck with Gridopolis on Kickstarter and everything else you got going on right now. Thank you, Gabe. I really appreciate that. And thanks for your time and invite me on here. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, Keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?